0: episode 160 for April 20th, 2021.
1: I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Flo.
2: And I'm Pam
0: Vador. And we are here in the fourth part of our five-week exploration of the giant book, The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. We've got one more week ahead of us, Pam. Boy, that sounded positive, didn't it?
2: it's always nice to read 19 chapters in a week oh boy I mean I found this book so fascinating but I'm feeling like maybe that was uh that was I'm not sure if everyone shares that experience however you're having conversations about this book outside of the book club right Oh, absolutely. And actually my library book club has, has been wanting to read this as well. So, Are they
0: smarter than us? Are they like paying attention?
2: (laughs) They're very, very, very worried about climate change. It was a, an ecology professor who recommended this book to me at UConn. And so I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of those kind of UConn reads books in the, in the next year or two. Again, it just came out. So I feel like a lot, there's a lot of buzz about it. A lot of people are reading this and trying to figure out what to do with it, but it's such a weird book as we've talked about. Today, I was hoping that we could talk a little more about our characters and, and see what they've been up to because of course it's not a character-driven book, that's for sure. Frank is in jail in Zurich. Mary comes to see him every week or two, which is interesting in its own way. And so what did you think of this sort of character development as far as it went in this fourth section of the novel? I was
0: glad to finally get to more character development. Mm -hmm. It seems to me like a different book would do all of the data pieces, maybe in the unorganized genre switching chapters that he did, and then get into the characters, the story, the narrative, the adventure. And I keep hoping that this book will do that, but I suspect that it actually won't.
2: and and I think that like one of the questions that I've been facing in other books that I'm reading as well is like I mean these Mary's a bureaucrat what kind of adventures is she really gonna have right
1: gotta shuffle those papers
2: right exactly I I mean she gives a lot of presentations She travels and has, you know, we get the notes. It's just, these are the things we don't usually put into fiction and maybe there's a good reason for that. And of course, when Mary and Frank meet, a lot of the things they talk about are exactly the things from the boardrooms, right? And so, you know, one of the early conversations they have in this section is Mary tells Frank that he shouldn't take on the world's problems right? He should just focus on himself. He's got PTSD. He's in jail. He's working in refugee camps during his day release portion of his punishment. So she's like, buddy, you shouldn't be taking on all the world's problems, which is probably advice that all three of us have given to people at various times. So I was curious, what do you guys think of that advice? I mean, is that good advice or do we? need to be thinking bigger than ourselves i would say think globally
0: act locally is one of those catchphrases. Mm-hmm. it is it is about your tiny perspective and thinking about the globalization of what you are doing but absolutely you need to focus on you if you are not able to get through your day you can't make a change so focusing on yourself uh, self care has been something that we've talked about for a long time now Mm -hmm. especially this year but you need to keep yourself going first i i agree with that
1: you're on the airplane and the flight attendant's giving all the instructions and says in a case of emergency you put your mask on before you help someone else put mm-hmm. theirs on and the idea is that you need to be in a good place of mind mm-hmm. and just in my experience in working in committees and a lot of things over time not every person has the desire or even um, the capacity to to think outside on the global issues that are going on. And that, that may sound arrogant, but I think people kind of self-select themselves out of some of the um, the bigger decisions out there. Um, not that they shouldn't have a part in them or things like that, but you know, in some ways you've got to be ready to be able to handle those uh, types of situations and, and, and think in, in a broad sense. And I think that that, uh, that may be the right thing for him to do. Mm-hmm.
2: And I think like Frank is dealing with, again, a lot of post-traumatic stress, but also, I mean, he's pretty depressed here. He's got a lot of stress and anxiety and he's really struggling in his life. It does make sense for Mary to tell him that, but at the same time, I mean, this is part of this sort of existential dread that a lot of younger people have today. Mm -hmm. And what Frank's in his mid twenties, mid to late twenties at this point, I mean, I see that in my own students. This just sort of feeling of like, there, there's really not that much we can do about the crisis that faces us.
1: All right, so I, I'm gonna bring up the Illinois connection because you know we have to. Uh, Abraham Lincoln served as president during the Civil War. And one of the strengths that um, it said he brought to the table as a leader was he suffered from what he called the melancholy? He suffered from depression. And that allowed him, during very dark times of war, the Civil War, when uh, a country was very divided on some issues, to be able to persevere through it and get him through that time. That was one of the, or that, that has been mentioned as potentially a, a benefit for him. Um, to get through some of this time. Mm-hmm. So I've, I'm just wondering if, if that, if climate change is, is that type of issue, if that is, you know, if that could actually be a benefit uh, mm-hmm. for a leader to be able to think through that. Anyway, it's just something to throw out there.
2: Interesting. And I've never really heard of like a benefit of depression. So, wow, I'll have to think about that. Frank and Mary also talk about social networks. And this really, you know, this is really interesting from like a social science perspective, because of course, historically, people used to know just a very small number of people. And today we know so many more people. Our communities are so much larger. But does that mean that we've lost the depth of having like six really strong, good connections? Oh, instead we have 300 kind of weak connections and so i don't like so start start with me there what do you guys think of our sort of broader socially networked community and how that impacts who we are as people
0: we've talked about this before where americans as a group are seen by other parts of the world as having these weak tiny little connections to each other, not building those strong, real connections with one another. And I see that in my experience all the time. I have some very close friends, and then I have these tiny little connections to these people who I call my friends, and it it's not enough for me sometimes. Sometimes I need more connections with more people, and I'm I'm sometimes desperate to make those connections. Now, bear in mind, this is 12 months of pandemic where I've been desperate to make connections, so take that with the, the grain of salt that it is. But I think that that is true. I think that we don't form strong connections with enough people. Well, I mean, there
1: there are different types of people. I mean, there are introverts and extroverts and all sorts of stuff like that. Humans, in general, are social animals. We require being near other humans. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to interact with them. Even the wallflower is soaking up the energy, the vibes of that area. Men, in general, start isolating themselves as they get older. In fact, I would say that many just don't have any connection um and and that may be one of the reasons they they die so early women in general form tighter connections with with each other in support groups um and and, and I think as as we start studying retirees more we'll, we'll start recognizing this is more and more of a challenge every once in a while you'll you'll find another um uh, article about this and I think one of the real travesties as people get older in men or women in this is that um, they do get isolated. Um, I think it was a book or a movie or something that there was a um, a woman was asked uh, what it was like getting older and she basically said it gets very lonely because all your friends die mm-hmm. and so that this is this is the the if you could live forever, and you were the only person. What would be the thing that you would miss most? That would be all your connections, because all of a sudden you are. Once those last threads die, you're, you're alone and floating. Yep,
0: there's so many Doctor Who episodes about that, by the way.
2: Okay. Of course, yeah. Any time travel, you know, mm-hmm. that has that exploration. Um, and, and I think there, you know, there were a number of studies just a couple of years ago, Chip, that I think you're, you're probably thinking about um, regarding specifically middle-aged men and the problem of loneliness um, is actually like more powerful than, um, you know, problems like problems of heart or cancer or whatever. Like this is a very, very pervasive problem. And I believe that the UK, in fact, set up a minister of loneliness um, whose portfolio is making sure that people get these kinds of connections. Now, one thing Frank says in this conversation that I thought was fascinating is he said, listen, even if our connections, even if we don't know a lot of people, he said, knowing about the other 8 billion people on the planet completely changes our network. So he's like, it's impossible to have those close connections, those small community connections of like Neanderthal man, because we know about the other 8 billion people. And I thought that was very insightful that you're we're always aware that our little world, our little community is just a tiny node in the global infrastructure.
0: Yeah, I like that section. That thinking about how easy it was for Neanderthal to know everybody in the tribe. And now that we have globalized so much, you can't possibly know everyone. But thinking about them is is important. I like that.
2: Now, (laughs) as we've discussed, Frank and Mary's adventures are not exactly, you know, (laughs) nail-biting. One of the, one of the big things that happens in this set of chapters is they take a walk mm-hmm. and they go out into nature and they look at animals mm-hmm. and it's very funny because I actually love taking hikes and seeing just the very ordinary animals. And like, if I see a fox, I'm so happy or a deer, like these are very ordinary animals. And so they go off into the, uh, the Swiss countryside and they see marmots and chamois, which I think is like a kind of, and so like these are the equivalent of seeing like a groundhog and a deer here, I think. And so it was, I thought it was interesting because as Mary's out in nature, she thinks, this is, this is kind of dull. <laughs> and I feel like, you know, <laughs> I don't teach creative writing classes, but I'm pretty sure the rule is like if your character thinks it's kind of dull your reader might as well so you don't need to include that but i actually loved this section and i love that when frank took a hike by himself and he saw this ibex he really wanted to tell mary about it but he couldn't really put into words how amazing it was and then he takes her so what he does instead is takes her out and they do have this sort of communion with nature but Eh, it's not like that powerful. And I think that's familiar. I I don't know. It's familiar to to me. Like I do really love nature, but then I also really like my computer (laughs) and like fast moving things. And that difficulty in slowing down felt very real to me. So, I don't know. What do you guys think is the role of nature in our lives? And do we have good avenues to to actually commune with nature?
0: Yeah, Frank and Mary go to the zoo was not my favorite chapter.
1: <laughs> you mean the caged animals? Yeah, really didn't bring up nature to you, Steve?
0: They're, they're kind of caged. They're in there. And it's like, okay, and then there's animals. Uh, yes, in your novel about... The nature and the ecology and the everything you should really you know like that kind of stuff and not say that it's boring
2: <laughs> but I like the realism of this woman with a fast-paced she's always traveling to different places and doing presentations and she has a million things on her to-do list and thinking wow I should really love nature more than I do but shouldn't,
0: in good writing, shouldn't there then be that moment where she changes her mind? It could,
2: it could still come, Steve. You don't.
0: Okay, maybe.
2: There's still a hundred pages left to go.
1: Maybe. Yeah, there's something else going on there. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's... Steve and I, we, we've read books and talked about the, um... I think it's the three-day effect, is what they talk about. People go for ice for three days, or they go on vacation, or whatever, and eventually, um your mind loosens up from the day-to-day activities and kind of uh-huh. embraces. And this is where the creativity starts. And really, I mean, if you're, you're in a tough spot and you need to be creative and, and you're uh, stuck in a life or whatever that thing is, it becomes very powerful to be able to, to get out there. Nature um, is one of those areas that allows you to do that. Now on, on a day-to-day basis, that ability to go walk through a forest preserve or go walk through some trees or whatever, that also will take you there. It may not give you the, the, um, the boost you need for the creativity, but it could ground you that the sunlight grounds you. It, it really, this idea of denying humans the needs that they have for their connection to nature, that could be one of the real travesties of, of living in the inner city without having, um, some form of nature nearby to, to kind of go and explore.
0: Hmm.
1: Kind of taking you out of your humanity.
0: And if I remember right, part of the three-day effect was it wasn't going to affect you the first day. No. But the first day was not the day that, it, that you had that epiphany. It was day three.
1: Yeah, that's for the creative boost. But for the day-to-day person, just, you know, getting off of work and going for a walk through, you know, along the Greenway or something of that nature has a positive effect to you. It can, and, and just being out in the sun can do the same thing. Your body craves nature. It, it craves to be connected to it. And one of the, uh, the real challenges I would would say to, to, for a person living in a large city that would not have access to it. I mean, think about what Central Park must mean to New York City the people in New York city, but if you're not around things like that, then you are not connected. You're, you're basically in the uh, cement hell Mm -hmm. and you're denying yourself some of the humanity. I I don't know, you know, going on a science fiction note, what do people in a spaceship do? Mm -hmm. I mean, to, to have that type of feeling. I mean, they are not going to all have holodecks, are they Steve?
0: Um, there's a a good mix of some sort of artificial way to do it and that idea of having a beautiful garden, going into that part of the ship where the garden is for that reason, for not just for the oxygen that trees can create, but for that communal moment where you get back to, okay, let's focus on where we're at. There's an importance to nature, I agree.
1: And not to, to 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 kind of derail this too much, when I was finding myself in D.C. and feeling I wasn't really connected, I'd go 90 miles out to West Virginia and go hike up a mountain. And that was a good way to reconnect yourself. And then, you know, stop at some diner and have some overcooked noodles really kind of cement that there's a real world out there mm-hmm. and there's an artificial world that we create.
2: So, in this segment, after their big walk in nature, we find out that Frank actually has a brain tumor. A young man he gets diagnosed with a brain tumor. And Mary's closest colleague, Tatiana, is murdered. And so she's back in the safe house. Frank has just got out of jail at the same time as Mary has just gone back into this protective custody. And so, as we're now four-fifths of the way through, what do you guys think happens to these characters in in the last part of the book?
0: I wish she was drawing more of a parallel between jail and protective custody. I wish that there was more of a, you know, hey, let's look at what the punishment of jail is and hey, let's look at what the, the hmm. being locked up in protective custody is. I wish that that was in the writing and it's not. That's a very important for me, metaphor here. Yes. We have this idea of the earth and are we in protective custody or are we locked in? What can we do in our situation? And I wish that that was better spelled out. But to, to your answer, do you want to... F- although
2: I although I love that you just spelled it out, Stephen. I think this is a book where the reader has to do a lot of work Right. And so I, I think that the pieces are there. And what you've just said is totally insightful. And it is an insight that is like a sensible step for the reader to make as you're reading this. Right. So you, this is like a very active, you know, you as a reader have to be very active during this. There's there's no sitting back and watching this thing develop. You gotta be. I'll agree with that. <laughs> this is not a book to
0: passively read. I, I agree with that.
1: We had a lot of uh, quotes from John Maynard Keynes, or at least a discussion about him. And he said, in the uh-huh. long run, we're all dead. So the <laughs> the idea of uh, you are just, you know, you're a blip in any time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the question is, is through a brain tumor, you know, you're unfortunate to, to die through, um, you know, just traditional death cancer or whatever um and then you know is a living death to be sitting in a uh, prison i mean these are all Mm -hmm. things to consider Mm -hmm.
2: right and as this novel thinks about the people who aren't born yet Right? Things like we are just one blip out of the 8 billion people walking this earth today. But when we think about the people of the future, we're an even tinier fraction of what there is in the world. It's a very, very existential that way. There's
0: way more people who are dead than people who are alive. Are, they, are you sure?
2: Yeah, way more. Although it's a surprisingly closer number than you would think.
0: The number of people who are dead is a huge number. There's there's so many people have gone through this life versus the 8 billion who are currently but, alive.
1: But the populations were a lot smaller.
2: Yeah. I know. I feel like I saw what the number was not that long ago. And it's surprisingly closer than you would think <laughs> just because of huge population boom. Yeah. So...
0: To your question, I don't think we actually answered your question. I, I don't know what's going to happen in the, in the final piece of our conversation next week. I don't know who these people are going to be at the end and whether they have gone through a narrative where they change from the beginning to the end. I, I suspect that we won't see much change from these characters.
2: What do you think, Jim?
1: Well, I think communism will prevail. So there we go. <laughs> I think the book was pretty heavy handed in what they want. So, uh,
2: <laughs> so no predictions about the characters.
1: Oh yeah. they will be, they will be good subjects in the communist uh, realm. they will be the
0: tools of the state. Wow. <laughs> okay. That's negative Amazing. chip. Thanks negative chip.
2: Well, yeah. <laughs> but this is the thing, right? This, like, I, I was kind of asking for a prediction here in part to think about the fact that this novel doesn't belong to a recognizable genre, so we can't really make any guesses Correct. because, like, there's nothing to, you know, hang our hats on as we predict because this is not. We have read so many genre novels together, and this is not a genre novel. Well, I, absolutely.
1: As I, I was reading this section, I kept getting the, the thought that the author was. Using every chapter to kind of explore some idea mm-hmm. yes. that, that they wanted to, to say, like, okay, what if, you know, you know, we want to talk about communism? Oh, let's, let's talk about that. And so it was just basically, and, and, you know, it's just one leap of logic to another to try to come to some conclusion. And at the end of it, maybe he uh, convinces himself, the author does. But I, I just can't help but think it's kind of monkey brain type stuff. Um, that some, what do you mean by that, Jim? Monkey brain is when you're you're basically having an argument in your head and you're you're winning it or whatever you're doing. But the deal is, is it, it's just an exercise on thought. It, it it may not ultimately do anything. He put this book together. I, I'm just not feeling it. I, I I think that it's just there's a lots of, a lot of leaps of uh, of and assumptions that are going on it. And he's trying to tackle a big subject, but what he's really doing is just, ultimately, it, the, the answer was there. I think it was at, uh, chapter 73, where he basically said communism. <laughs> that's, that's that was what the goal is. And just because we all agree to it, and and without really recognizing what some of the challenges were uh, under, mm-hmm. under those terms. I mean, basically, you're, you're uh, it takes away the individual and uh, you become a tool. And it's, it's cruel and, it's, and it is destructive. And if you looked at the world uh, through the, the, you know, if you look at South Korea to North Korea, you see the difference in cruelty. And I don't want to live in a world that's that cruel to people. I'm going to live in a world where we, we lift each other as opposed to destroying each other.
0: And I think that that's where he is ultimately going here, is this idea of this utopia, or as you might see it, a dystopia, where we work together on these issues, we focus on these issues, and yes, the workers are exploited in the ways that the workers have always been exploited, but now it's different because of our global focus. This
1: time it's different.
0: Yeah, it's different this time. It's not the same workers being exploited. It's different workers and different exploitation. <laughs> it's an old story, my friend.
2: So, I do want to just ask you guys one more question about characters, because then, then let's talk about this like utopian or maybe dystopian project. So, we've talked a lot about how this is not a character driven novel. And we also, I think we all agree on that. So, here's my question. Does that make sense within the context? Like these characters, when we think about Frank and Mary, they both don't have partners, they don't have families. These are people who would never even think about bringing children into this world. Like they wouldn't, it wouldn't even cross their minds. And that's something that a lot of the students that I work with, the 18 to 24s tell me, oh, I would never have kids. That would be totally unfair to bring children into this climate crisis world. I just wouldn't do it. They feel very clear about that. Right, And so that means that they're not characters that the three of us who do have families and do have this feeling about the future um, that I think is much more optimistic than those of, of Mary and Frank, like it's hard for us to relate to them. It's, I guess I'm, I'm asking like, is the flatness of their character realistic to their worldview? Is it in fact good writing?
1: This is the leap of logic. The the idea that they're not having children because how could they dare bring children into this world, uh, this dying world? Well, it also could be that we have we have studies that show that as societies get wealthier, people choose to have less children because they start valuing other things than having more children. There's no shortage of people in this earth, and many of those people are coming from poor people, so poor countries just like that because that's what exactly what they're dealing with. So the, the one of the strategies, I guess, we could be dealing with as far as working in a situation where um, uh, the earth is having the challenges that they're having could be to make other parts of the world wealthier. And they probably will experience those same types of declines.
2: And, and Chip, I certainly wasn't saying that Mary yeah. and Frank are right. And we should, I, them. I'm just saying, like, I think that's their perspective. At least that's how I'm... I,
1: I, I don't care about them. the development
2: I, of these characters.
1: I don't care about the characters. I don't, I don't think this is a story about characters. I think this is a story about ideas.
0: I I love caring about characters, and I do not care about these characters. I, I There is nothing about... Mary's situation she is trying to do the, what she thinks is the right thing. And I ap- applaud her for that as a character, but I do not care about her and I do not care about Frank and I do not care about this budding relationship between the two of them. This, this will they, won't they sitcom style, uh, what coupling ritual that we're seeing. I do don't care if they are together at the end of this book or not. My, wait, my ch- wait, wait, wait,
2: wait! Can I pause there? Do you guys think there's a romantic element between these two?
0: Yes, I think that. Oh, they're
2: that didn't even cross my mind with this 5 year old woman and this 25-year-old man. I,
0: I think that she cares oh. about him yeah. and that she sees him as an important part of her life. Whether that leads yes, to I romance agree with that, is I a whole other thing.
2: Romantic. But in that's interesting. In
0: other stories, it certainly would have been. Therefore, the next logical feeling is romance.
2: Huh.
0: Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm. No, I'm based. so interested in that. Oh wow! It just hadn't crossed
2: my mind.
0: I. That's that's huh. the way I was seeing it. Was okay. in a different novel in a different story. That's where we, Mulder and Scully, they cared about each other so much that they then, the next logical thing was romance and then they had a child. I, I, I Maybe I'm Ooh. reading into it because I'm looking for something to care about with these characters, um, but I don't.
2: Interesting. So, okay, cool. I guess I, I'm kind of curious And this is something that maybe I'm thinking about it because I've been reading another dystopian novel in which the character is very unlikable, but the product of his dystopia. And it's M.T. Anderson's feed. And I actually think that that's very good writing to make him such a flat and unlikable character because that's part of what happens in this world. And so uh, personally, like, I'm willing to to give Robinson that... um, you know, I'm willing to think about these characters as written within this climate crisis context, but I am I'm, I'm totally accept that you guys are giving him no credit for that, and I get that, too. So, but I wanted to put that perspective out there for other readers.
0: Back to utopia and dystopia, Pam. This is something that you may have studied in the past, utopia and dystopia. So in my reading of this, we the author is taking us down this path toward something very similar to what I admire about the Star Trek universe, where everybody has equity Everybody has everything they need, and they are not striving to get to that wealth, that, that goal of having more.
2: Right. And that was, a, and it's interesting, I love that you bring up Star Trek, because that was a very difficult show to write for. And some writers actually chose to leave that show because Gene Roddenberry was so vehement that there was not to be any conflict between the members of the crew, since in a utopian future, they would basically get along with very, very small exceptions. There wouldn't be any deep seated conflicts. And some science fiction writers were like, I'm not, I'm not writing for this. All of the dangers from outside and inside, they all get along. And so that is like, that is one of the problems of writing utopia, right? Is that you get these flat characters Agreed. So, yeah. Yeah. So this notion of equity, um, the section that we were reading this time opened, COP meetings of the Paris Climate Agreement kept happening every year, despite the increasing sense of irrelevance everyone in attendance felt in the face of the world's ever widening disasters. So was like, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. These are people who are trying to handle the situation and they are feeling irrelevant and basically just... Impotent in the face and the scope of the climate crisis. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a very dark opening to this segment.
0: And and then we get into questions of equity, not equality, but equity. Is it fair to ask the haves? to pay more than the have-nots. It seems to me like if you don't have enough money, you can't pay. And if you have money, you can pay. And it seems like equity is simple. I wish equity was simple.
2: (laughs) It's a simple idea, very difficult in practice. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: At UConn, and I think in a lot of places now, Um, We have a new term for what used to be like diversity and multiculturalism studies and, and committees, which is JEDI justice, equity, diversity, and inclusivity. And I think that that's an interesting, like, there's something really kind of fun, but also optimistic about that. There's an obvious pop culture reference there, but there's also this notion that like justice, equity, diversity, inclusivity, these are really, really important notions that should drive really the mission of the university, the mission of everything that we're doing. And so I think that is, he doesn't use the word Jedi, because I think it's still a kind of new acronym, but it fits, it fits with this novel. So it's one of the central principles that he's interested in. And mm-hmm. people like Mary, that people like the Ministry for the Future are interested in. this equity not only for living people, but for people who haven't been born yet. Mm -hmm. That utopia, that idea
0: of we don't worry about these things anymore. We focus on what's important and, and yes, we have decided these things are important and we are going to make a community that is focused on that. I
2: think that is the utopia
0: that he's going for.
2: But then the other element of utopia is always the personal cost as well. As we've talked about with Ursula K. Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away From Omelas." there's always a cost to a utopian vision. And so I think it's interesting that in this, um, in these chapters, we also get the note about like what happens to people doing the work, the bureaucratic work. And so about the Paris Climate Agreement, quote, on the subway rides during summit meetings, they compared notes on divorces, bankruptcies, broken career paths, stress-related illnesses, and all the other personal costs accrued by throwing themselves so hard into this cause. And that's like an interesting note, and obviously Tatiana gets killed. Um, Frank has PTSD from being an aid worker, um, caught up in this horrible heat wave that kills like almost everyone but himself. So that's one of the questions that I think like, would you recommend environmentalism as a career path to like a child that you love? I mean, is this, I mean, people have to do this work, but is it something that you really would want your loved one to do?
0: I feel the same way about this as I do about all of my wonderful special ed teachers, the ones who care so deeply for the needs of their students that they burn out after five years, right. that that they can't put themselves aside and focus on everybody else. They, they drop dead. So I, I, it's, it's so challenging yeah. for me to yeah. want to change global but i need to focus on local boy
2: i i i don't know the answer pam i love that connection though i love that connection to people in special ed i think that's a, such a good note and again it's all about that value of equity
0: right mm-hmm. what's your thoughts chip
1: well i mean you, you you should follow the things that you have interest in there's the power of having a little bit of knowledge of a lot of areas. And that's where you hope that our legislative class comes from. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you have a passion for, you know, clean water and and, um, clean air and things of that nature, and you're looking to try to find solutions to those things, then follow your passion. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of, of schooling and, and, um, and deciding to, Devote your life to certain causes. Hmm.
2: Well, and it's interesting because in the end of these chapters, we do start to get a little bit of a, a a glimmer of hope, right? In terms of climate crisis, there's all these rewilding efforts, these reforesting efforts, and right at the end of the segment that we just read, the CO2 figures start to drop just a little bit <laughs> from 474 to. 455 or whatever, um, parts per million. But this is there is a little bit of hope in this section. So we'll see where we're going. But
0: there's a little bit of hope but there's a whole lot of terrorism yes. There's so many points in this section where i i was like no you can't yeah. kill people you can't destroy you know whatever it is that you're destroying and killing those people in order to benefit the rest and, uh, there were so many moments in here that i was frustrated
2: well and all of the um as you
1: should be it's immoral
2: yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all of yeah. the environmental migrants and the there's the hopelessness of their situation. I know <laughs> so, mm-hmm. it's very very dark, and the little glimmers of hope are super tiny. And again, and presented in that like a not very meaningful way. Like, what is the difference to you and me between 474 and 455? Um, you know, parts of CO2 per million, like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, it's just, yeah. It's frustrating.
0: There's there's so many frustrating parts to this book, but there, there's some meaningful, interesting parts.
2: Well, but do you think it's the frustration of the novel or just the frustration of working towards change when it comes to the climate crisis or both?
0: <sighs> it's both. I, I am frustrated about the climate crisis in general, but I am frustrated by this writing specific. It is okay. both for me.
2: So let me ask a question you might not have an answer to Um, any meaningful or interesting chapter that you want to pause on before we leave this fourth of five parts of this discussion.
0: I didn't write down which chapter it was, but I did like the character who was redoing her farming and she was bullying her husband into redoing the farming. And her, the quote that just made me laugh out loud, I will kill you. I, no, I will divorce you. I will kill you. And I will tell everybody why. <laughs> I, I, I like that character. I want a book of that character. <laughs>
2: And I think that actually might dovetail with one of the chapters I found super interesting, which was chapter 87, the Half Earth Project. This notion of the rewilding movement of actually moving people out of these very small uh, rural areas and the moving these little towns. And so I just thought that chapter, which was this little Midwestern town where basically Everyone gets like a very nice settlement to move somewhere else so that this town can become part of this big nature sanctuary. Whew, that was tough. That's the kind of little town I come from. It's super easy to imagine what that evening at the town hall would look like. This idea that, oh, all of you guys should move to a medium-sized city not far away and you should all move to the same medium-sized city so you can keep your same neighbors. You know that's not going to nope. happen. No, nope. here's the payout, and it's the amount of money that, like your industry is gone. It's it's a perfectly generous amount of money that you basically have to take. Like it's. I thought that was that really. That uh, to me that was a very touching, um, and quite possibly realistic. I don't know. I don't. Mm-hmm. know.
1: What, so we we actually have you know. an? Ex- we have an example of that happening right now. It's in Montana. Okay. Yeah, I can't think of what the name of it is, but I, um, I listened well, to it. Well, and that's the thing, right? It. <laughs> a
2: little they, you never heard of.
1: But what they're doing is they're... Con- so North America does not have any uh, large animals left. Um, yeah. in, you know, in Africa, the, there's, that area is getting smaller. But regardless, the idea was to recreate a, a corridor for large migrating animals. We think of bison and things of that nature. And what they were doing is taking um, private lands and connecting them so that these animals can migrate and work over these large periods uh, pieces of land. And it just, um, it, the, the, the process or the thought of it was, once again, there's, there's um, the way we've kind of created our, the United States, it's just not conducive, uh, it doesn't work real well to having this this type of um, large animals and, and how they kind of move and how they naturally move and to try to reintroduce some of that to the population. And so there's a group out there that's it's actually doing that.
0: Yeah, that section about the Midwestern ecological illiteracy, like we needed to farm, so we needed to get rid of these pests, so we needed to do this, and now here we are, and the idea of we don't know what we don't know, the illiteracy. Well, they're doing that in Yellowstone, a
1: few years ago, they reintroduced the wolves. And so, what, what does that mean? It's where the, the, the uh, animals, like the deer and stuff, that would come down and all this, the uh, trees would be eaten to the ground and stuff like that. Well, it, the, the, the wolves chase the deer back up into the mountains. So, what does that end up happening? Well, it, what ends up happening is those trees get an opportunity to grow. Each part of, of a, um, a natural community has a, this, this part to play. Uh, but earlier this year, there was uh, they found black bears uh, in central Illinois which they had not seen in a long time. So the bears were actually
2: commuting
1: <laughs> much farther. I think they usually stopped at the Wisconsin border because they know it's the border.
0: Yeah, they took my picnic basket. They did? <laughs> I think it was a boo-boo or was that Yogi? <laughs> uh, Ranger, sir, the picnic basket was just there.
2: <laughs> but these efforts at ecosystem management are really fascinating and they're they are happening but they're very complicated there's all of these pieces mm-hmm.
0: There there's a couple of other parts that i i liked very much in this uh the idea of Democracy is also good. This is a quote Democracy is also good. But again, for those of you who believe this word is just a cover story for oligarchy and Western imperialism, let's call it real political representation. Do you feel you have real political representation? And I don't know that I do. The system that we have in place for our political representation is it truly representing my? point of view it should but the question is does it
1: alright so when when you're dealing with this we have a representative um, democracy right and sort of how it's put together and we don't want ultimately we don't want true democracy one vote one person is terrible because we want the individual protected that's the reason why we put the bill of rights in,
0: Mm
1: and ultimately why somebody like George Mason refused to sign um, the constitution because it didn't have a bill of rights that protected the individual and so we want to protect the individual. We don't want mob rule. Rob, mob rule could be incredibly destructive to, uh, um, to the individual because we, we all could agree that it would be best for Steve to do something that he doesn't want to do. Um, so th- there is this balance that, or this tiptoeing that we ultimately want to, to play. But there's plenty of studies that show that interested parties in certain policies anything you could ever imagine think of can come in and they can sway a group and it could be anything from i mean every once in a while you hear about the gm uh, general motors is the automotive company uh ceo saying what you know what's good for gm is good for america and you get the story of how many of our um uh, railways, uh, railroad systems, trans systems, things like that that were in cities were tore up because they made roads for uh, uh, automobiles. Well, those American cities are totally differently designed now than European cities. If you're a person right now in the United States, many communities require you to have a car to drive. Well, is that good ultimately for society? I I, I think you could argue today that that's a, a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Um, what would so? What should we do about that? Well, you know, if you're a place like Chicago that has a intense population, well, maybe some of the decisions you make are um, uh, how to make to turn those areas back into spaces, walking paths, and things of that nature. But what do you what do you do if you're out in some area like? Um, uh, that's not as densely population or you're, you're designing a community right now well they are ultimately becoming these communities suburbia and while suburbia in the 50s was thought of as this lovely area uh, you know you go out and get your little postage stamp and and build your uh, your home into it that what they've turned into is just you know incredibly wasteful uh, use of uh, materials so how do how do we redesign those areas these are um, Decisions individuals can make, and these are decisions that you know your community, local community leaders can make, and you could be part of. But you know the idea that the individual's happiness or joy or something like that shouldn't be considered is, is I think, uh, foolishness in itself, because at that point you just become the tool of whatever uh, power party is is leading at the time, and that's that's a terrible precedent.
0: Yeah, it takes somebody and that, that
1: creates sure. evil is what it ultimately does hmm.
0: my least favorite chapter was chapter 85 where they listed all of the ecological groups around the world one at a time for like 700 minutes
2: <laughs>
0: that i didn't i was not that did not make me happy
2: <laughs> but but it's funny because that did um i know what you're saying about like the listing it, it wasn't it wasn't in
1: fact, we just call it the listing
2: <laughs> the listing, but um but it it did speak to the to, I think the the slightly more hopeful feeling of this set of chapters.
0: So, I would have gotten it after a list of ten
2: right <laughs> seriously <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you're right, yeah, but it, I feel like it was it was it changed the tenor. Um, into a little bit more optimism, perhaps. I got it.
0: I got it after 10.
2: <laughs> I know, I hear you, I hear you. Um, and Chip, did you wanna do a favorite chapter or shall we finish with mine?
1: My favorite chapter was 73. It's the one where he actually said that he is interested in communism. And I think that the, um, if, if you understand what that really means to the individual, I think that you should read this book with incredible amount of caution.
0: What's your, what was your favorite chapter, Pam?
2: Um, you know, I've been fairly fond of those little word poems that he puts in every once in a while. So I kind of like chapter 77. Um, but I, I feel like it's either going to be like a favorite or a least favorite for readers. You either kind of like this approach or you don't. So, um, this is the one which in which the narrator is history. I am the tide running under the world that no one sees or feels. I happen in the present, but I'm told only in the future. And then they think they speak of the past, but really they are always speaking about the present. I do not exist and yet I am everything. You know what I am, I'm history, now make me good. And so this kind of like little poem, lyrical poem, um, I kind of like that because I I, I buy that point that like when we say history, when we're like, oh, every student has to take one history class for their degree. Um, we are really thinking about history as something that is in the past. And it brings up these questions of the cyclicality of history where, and Chip, you're the best about just being like, hey, this looks like this, like here's some examples of history that would, that would be relevant to this situation about the future. But at the same time, there's I think always a question of like, is history always cyclical? Is this different? Is this situation different? Is the climate crisis different? And that's something that people are debating all over the place. And when you know Geological Society comes up with the term Anthropocene, that's a huge sort of break in how we think about Paleolithic eras. And so it's a, I mean, it's it's a great question about to what degree is the history is, is history the present? We just don't think about it that way because we're living it. To what degree is it the future? Of course it is. It's all of those things.
1: And immediately, I'm thinking of like the Mayan calendar, which shows like some some um, cyclical nature of it. I'm also uh-huh. thinking not of horoscopes, but of the classical study of like astrology, where you have, you have your time period, you have your years, then you have your great years, and how the cosmos kind of works through the different uh, areas. I mean, we are on the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Is that what we're... We're doing so. I mean, there are there is this nature. I mean, I'm sorry, nature. There is this idea that there are great cyclical periods of time, um, and the question is is that is that true or is it linear?
0: I mean. Or is that just humans trying to find a pattern? Right. Trying to find a pattern, <laughs> desperately trying to put together truth into a pattern so that we can understand it.
1: We, we're designed to look, look for patterns, aren't we? Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a big question. These are big questions, Pam. This is a big question book. <laughs> Sorry. It's all right. I
1: saw, there's no big problem with big questions. That's, that's the best type of
0: questions disagree <laughs> <laughs> i like little questions especially
2: when they don't have answers
0: exactly because yes it exactly it's when the
2: answers are way bigger than our lifespans would allow us to ever answer that- yes
1: and there's the deal is that you could live your whole life sacrificing and um, never know whether it was worth it or not
2: exactly
0: right wow Right. thanks that's very uplifting Whew.
2: all right After the pad- back we go my friends what a lovely small discussion we've had here this morning
0: all right so we are going to finish up this book next week chapters 90 through the end of this book for next week and then we will finish this book and then I get to choose my book for the book club next week so I, I will I'll take solace in that
2: and I promise to bring something much lighter for the next one. it us just be a typical apocalypse I've already chosen it.
0: all right <laughs>
2: Much lighter. Nothing big.
0: (laughs) I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week. Can we come back next week, Pam? We'll finish this book. Let's do it. We would love to hear from you. What do you think? What are you thinking about this book? Are we totally off base? Are, are we on the right track? Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Our website is at com. Our email is is at, at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube and Amazon Podcasts and Stitcher and TuneIn. Re- well, I, everywhere. We're everywhere. The future is podcasting. That's the future. I want to thank you for listening to Sandwiches at regular hours. I'm Steve Fodor I'm Chip Hassenclough And I'm Pam Badone we we'll see you
2: in the future What I want to talk about Is what I want to thank you for What I want to thank you for